That song that we just sang together, really all the songs that we sang, but the song that we just sang together is not simply true. Now, it is true, and we're committed to only singing songs that declare the truth of who God is and declare the, the truth about the gospel, but that song was more than just true, wasn't it? It was honest. It was take off the mask, drop your guard, drop all pretense, honest. And I'm curious how many of us found ourselves just really relating to the lyrics as we sang them, in the suffering and in the sorrow, when my sinking hopes are few, I will hold fast to the anchor, I will never be removed. Today is a day when we are going to do this. We are going to set our faces like granted, like granite, and with eyes wide open, we are going to look at and behold the truth, goodness, and beauty of Jesus. And as we do, what we should experience is the ability to be honest, to be honest with him, and to be honest with each other. Now, talking about being honest, let me ask you, how many of you would say, Rick, it just seems strange that we have this kind of great moment, this vulnerable moment of worship, and we're just being honest about grief and suffering, how we look to Christ, and then we wheel out this box with all of this happy, clappy nonsense on it. And in this series, we're talking about what it's like to be wrapped up, and the box kind of represents what we can be or how we may look. And some of you might say, Rick, no, 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 no. Strange is not the right word. Because when you are in the middle of grief and you're hurting and someone comes rolling in and they look like that, it's not strange, it's offensive. And then others might say, no, offensive is not the right word. Because when you're in the middle of grief and you're hurting and you get honest about it and you express it and someone comes rolling in looking like that, it's actually wounding. And I'm curious how many of us have had this experience where we are hurting, we're grieving, and we're open about it, and the people around us will not go there with us. They keep our hurts at arm's length. And maybe it's because they're unwilling, and maybe it's because they're unable, but how many of us know what that is like? Have you ever had that before? And I want to submit today that I don't think the best explanation, when people won't go there with us, I don't think it's because they're unwilling. And maybe I'm wrong. And what I'm going to say next, you can just kind of take it and throw it in the trash. That's okay. You won't hurt my feelings. But I think the reason that people don't go there with us isn't because they're unwilling. It's because they are unable. The reason that people say shallow things and cliche things and they're wrapped up in this plastic veneer of hollow, fake gladness is because they just don't know how to be in those moments with us. Being a pastor, I've been given the privilege of basically a backstage pass into people's lives, and I've been invited in in the, in the moments immediately after some of the most devastating, excruciating pain they're ever going to experience in their life. And in those moments, with seeing other people and how they relate, I have heard people say the stupidest things, the most unhelpful things, the most shallow, cliche, happy, clappy nonsense you can imagine. And it's not because, I'm convinced, it is not because people are trying to be hurtful to the hurting. It's because they do not have the resources to respond to grief. It's because either they don't know or they misunderstand Jesus. It's because either they don't know or they misunderstand the tremendous resources that we have from the gospel when we're hurting. 
Today I want to share something uh, from the beloved uh, philosopher and Christian writer and thinker, uh, Dallas Willard, and what he has to say is challenging, and I, I can't help but wonder, this thing we're about to read together, did he say this because he was inspired, at least in part, because of what we're talking about? Dallas Willard said this, how many people are radically and permanently repelled from the way, from the way of Jesus, by Christians who are unfeeling, stiff, unapproachable, boringly lifeless, obsessive, and dissatisfied. Yet such Christians are everywhere. And what they are missing is the wholesome liveliness springing from a balanced vitality with the freedom of God's loving rule. Spiritually wrongly understood. Let's lean into this. Spirituality wrongly understood and pursued is a major source of human misery and rebelling against God. Now, I wish this wasn't true, but there are times and past chapters of my life where this would have been a spot-on description of me. And the reason that in past chapters of my life that this would have been a spot-on description of me is because I did not understand the relationship between discipleship and emotional health. I did not understand the relationship between spiritual maturity and emotional maturity. And you guys are an incredibly smart crowd, and I know that you know this. The Christian life cannot be reduced to Bible trivia, can it? The Christian life cannot be reduced to trying to collect all the right answers about theology and biblical content. The entire point of the Christian life is to know Jesus and to be his ambassadors in this world. It's why as a church we've really rallied around this statement this year, leadership is a destination of discipleship. Seriously following Jesus means taking seriously our responsibility to be like him, to represent him so that we can lead other people to know him. And so this has been our drumbeat, our anthem through this series. We are the wrapping paper that people have to get through to get to Jesus. We want this to be true, that when people experience us, they catch a glimpse of Jesus and what he is like. And so today, as we are talking about the subject of grief and trusting and following Jesus, I want to ask us a couple of questions. And these are questions that I'm not going to be able to put a bow on for us today. We're not going to have like a neat and tidy answer. They are questions that each of us have to answer personally and individually. And these are the questions. What is it like to experience me when I'm grieving? Am I like Jesus? What is it like to experience me when you're grieving? Am I like Jesus? And in this series, what we're trying to do is make sure that we understand Jesus. We just want to really look at and appreciate and better know Jesus. So we're looking at different scenes from his life. And today, we're going to look at a scene that was written by a guy named Luke. Now, Luke wasn't there. Luke was not an eyewitness to these events and the life of Jesus. But the reason that he was able to write a biography of Jesus' life and teaching is because he wrote what he wrote based on eyewitness testimonies, eyewitnesses who he interviewed. And from all the archaeologically, archaeological discoveries that we've had from his life to today and all the historical discoveries that have been made from his life to today, Luke has proven to be a first-rate historian. He is trustworthy. And what we're going to read comes from his account of Jesus' last night of freedom, hours before the crucifixion. Luke wrote this. Jesus went out, as usual, to the Mount of Olives. There was a garden there where Jesus wanted to pray. And his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. 
And then Jesus withdrew about a, throne, a, a, a stone's throw beyond them. He knelt down and he prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, yours be done. And an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in, what's this word? And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He said to them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Now this scene right here from Jesus' life is his last night of freedom. What happened shortly before this, he had just shared a final meal, the Passover meal, with his closest disciples, his closest companions. That's what people are talking about when they refer to the Last Supper, the last meal of Christ. And then he knows that the crucifixion is just hours away. And so he wants to go to the garden and pray and commune with his heavenly Father. This is a time of tremendous anxiety and sorrow for the disciples. It's a time of deep anguish for Jesus. Again, the cross is just hours away, and he wanted to pray. If you were here last week, you remember that we said this, that the gospel is full of deep theological truth and highly practical truth. It is deeply theological and highly practical. And so today, we're going to see that again. What we're going to do is we're going to make some observations about Jesus from this passage. We're going to see some deep theological truth, and then we're going to see how that translates into highly practical truth for your life and for my life. Here's the first observation that I want to make from this is Jesus was not praying to himself. Jesus was praying to God the Father. He's praying to God the Father. He wasn't praying to himself. Again, this is where we see a snapshot, a glimpse into the Trinity. God is one in being and three in persons. And Jesus is God the Son. He's not praying to himself. He is praying to God the Father. So when people ask, if Jesus is God, who is he praying to? Well, he's praying to the Father. God is one in being, three in persons. We see the Trinity. Here's another observation from Jesus. Referencing Jesus' sweat was not about experiencing a possible medical condition, but breaking the curse of sin. Luke twenty two forty four describes Jesus this way as he's praying, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, this is a descriptive phrase to be sure. I don't believe that the best explanation for this phrase is to take it literally as though Jesus was literally sweating blood. This can be understood like our expression, sweating bullets. Have any of you ever sweated bullets? Has anyone ever sweated ammunition? Probably not. Now, whether or not Jesus' blood has uh, had, Jesus' sweat had blood mixed in, I'm sure is interesting, but it's far more profound than that. What is Luke trying to highlight? Why would Luke highlight that Jesus was sweating? Well, Luke wants us to see something. And we're not going, we're going to be limited in our ability to really understand and see Luke 22 unless we read it in light of Genesis 3. Back in Genesis 3, the first people, Adam and Eve, sinned against God right before they were kicked out of the garden, cut off from God's presence. God listed a number of curses and consequences for sin. This is one of the consequences, part of the curse that God communicated to Adam. He said this, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. 
And when Luke highlighted this, what he's highlighting for us is this is Jesus' declaration, I am here to break the curse of sin and death. And when I die, I will not return to dust, but I will return. So we can summarize this like this. In the garden, Adam ate the fruit of sin and brought wrath and death to all who would follow him. And in this garden where Jesus prayed, Jesus took the cup of wrath and death, bringing life to all who'd follow him. I want to make another observation about Jesus uh, from this passage. Jesus was emotionally expressive. He is expressing his deep, powerful emotion of anguish in prayer. And it's not just in prayer. I mean, it's expressed physically. You can see it on and in his body. Jesus was emotionally expressive. And we see Jesus express emotions all throughout the gospel. There are times he expresses anger or frustration or sorrow or joy or compassion. Jesus is emotionally expressive. So I want to ask us, how emotionally expressive are we? How emotionally expressive should we be? What does it mean to be emotionally expressive and to be like Jesus? So let me ask a couple of questions. These are going to be somewhat practical questions. How many of us, our, the, way that, the way that our culture views what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman has shaped how we express and experience our own emotions? How many of us could say that our family history and our family culture has shaped how we express and experience our own emotions? How many of us would say that the broader culture that we live in, and maybe even our church and religious culture and history, has shaped how we express and experience our own emotions? Why is it important to think about this? Because we don't just want to believe in Jesus. We want to be like Jesus. Let's make another observation of Jesus from this passage. Jesus prayed with unedited honesty and unflinching submission. There was nothing about the anguish that Jesus wanted. That Jesus was just honest with his heavenly Father. He was, he was just honest. I don't want this cup. If you could take this cup and let it pass from me, let it. And yet, he immediately followed with, not my will, but your will be done. So if Jesus didn't want the anguish that was coming, but was willing to, in an unflinching way, just submit himself to it, why? What's the explanation for that? I love how the writer of Hebrews summarizes this for us. He said, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. And what we see here is that Jesus submitted his whole self to the will of the Father. Jesus submitted his whole emotional self to the will of the Father. And in submitting his whole self and even his whole emotional self and all the things that he was feeling, he didn't suppress and stuff what he was feeling. He was honest about it. He didn't edit himself. And I'm just curious, do you ever feel pressure to edit yourself? Do you ever feel pressure to edit what you feel? Do you ever feel pressure to edit what you feel and express what you feel here in church? Do you ever feel pressure to edit and limit what you feel in prayer? Jesus didn't. Here's another observation I want to make, and this is one that has really grabbed a hold of me this week. His agony, Jesus' agony, didn't decrease his prayer, and his prayer didn't decrease his agony. The pain that Jesus was feeling didn't cause him to pray less. 
And it seems as though the prayers that Jesus prayed did not cause him to feel less anguish. And there is a kind of counterfeit theology. There is a bad thinking that we might be vulnerable to. And if I could just be really honest, if I could be really vulnerable with you, there are times that I want to believe the bad theology. There are times that I want to embrace the counterfeit way of thinking. What is it that I'm talking about? It's this. Is if I believe in Jesus and I do all the Christian things, Jesus will make the hurts hurt less. It's the belief that following Jesus means that I'm not going to feel the negative stuff as much. The gospel is not a kind of bulletproof vest that softens the blow of pain in this life. The gospel is not a kind of body armor to protect us against the shock waves of grief. The good news of the gospel is not that trusting and following Jesus makes hurt hurt less. It's not that it softens the blow of hurt. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus took it all willingly, that Jesus took the full brunt of it himself. He felt it all himself, and he chooses to be with us in our grief and our hurt, even bringing joy to us in the middle of it. It's why the writer of Psalm 23 would write, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I'm not gonna be afraid because you're with me. And this is not some sort of abstract principle. This is personal. Jesus did not, as fully God, he did not make himself immune to the hurts and the pains in life that leave us busted and broken. He stepped into the deepest pit of grief and he went all the way to the bottom. And this cup of anguish that Jesus was praying about, yes, it was about the cross, but it wasn't simply the physical pain and severity and anguish of the cross. It was so much more. What was the cup that Jesus drank? He felt all the weight of every injustice against every single person from all of human history. Jesus felt the weight of all the self-loathing that people put on themselves in the aftermath of morally broken choices and regret from all of human history. Jesus felt the full weight of guilt and shame and insecurity that comes from sin from all people from all of human history. And Jesus felt the full weight of just, holy, divine wrath against sin from all of human history. The good news of the gospel is not that somehow Jesus makes hurts hurt less. It's that Jesus took the full weight of it on himself. He didn't just sit in it. He let himself be nailed to it. And then he got up and rose from the dead, proving that he has the ability to give beauty for ashes, proving that he has the ability to give life from death, proving that he has the ability to take old, busted, and broken things and to make them whole and to make us new. So here's the question. How does this deep theological truth translate into highly practical truth for our lives? I think we see that as we look at Jesus' interaction with his disciples that night. Turning back to Luke 22, says this, on reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Twice Jesus comes to him and says, guys, you gotta pray because there is a decision moment coming. 
You are going to have to make some choices tonight, and I want you to make the right kind of choices. I don't want you to stumble and fall into temptation, and you've got, you can't be accidental. It's not gonna come naturally to you. You have to be intentional for you to be ready to face what's coming tonight. You gotta be on purpose. You gotta pray. And so this is what I wanna draw from this. This is where we're beginning to take on some highly practical truth. Spiritual maturity doesn't happen naturally. It happens intentionally. Our growth and our ability to stand, our ability to mature, it doesn't happen naturally. It happens intentionally. Let's look again at the passage, and I think you'll see why I'm drawing this out. When he rose from prayer, he went back to the disciples and he found them, what were they doing? They were asleep, exhausted from sorrow. So let me ask you, we're gonna do a little quiz, we're gonna do a little play along time, all right? You guys get to express to me your viewpoint. If you think it's, they were not wrong, it was totally okay for them to feel sorrow, I want you to put your thumbs up. If you think they were wrong for feeling sad, put your thumbs down. All right, here we go, are you ready? How many of you guys think that it was okay for them to be sad that night? All right, look at all of these empathetic people, I love it, great. Emotion, emotionally healthy people in here, whew, you passed. There's nothing wrong with feeling sorrow. But what happened? What did they do with all the things that they felt? They went with what came naturally, and what came naturally was just giving in, rolling over, and falling asleep. Instead of following the command and the leadership of Jesus, it's time to pray. Don't go with what comes naturally. You gotta be intentional and take all of the stuff that you're feeling right now and get honest with God in prayer. That's how you are going to be ready. Are you with me? So I'm gonna put something on the screen right now. And what I'm about to put on the screen, for some of us, it's gonna feel new. And for some of us, you're gonna say, Rick, I don't think that's right. Let me be clear. What I'm about to put on the screen is absolutely indispensable. It's a non-negotiable. If we wanna grow in our relationship with him, if we wanna grow in Christ-likeness, our spiritual maturity will never outpace our emotional maturity. Our spiritual maturity will never outpace our emotional maturity. This cannot happen if we're going to ignore Jesus' leadership in this humongous area of our lives. And I think this really comes into focus when we see all of what's happening in Luke chapter 22. Unfortunately, I don't have time to read all of it, but let me share some things. Earlier, before this moment, Jesus had a final meal with his disciples, the Passover meal. And he was trying to prepare them for the trauma that was coming that night. And to get them ready for the trauma that was coming that night, Jesus said, said this, hey, listen, if you don't have a sword, go sell your coat and buy one. And then one of the disciples said, hey, Jesus, we got two swords right here. To which Jesus said, knock it off. He literally said, that's enough which tells us Jesus was not being literal. He was being metaphorical. He was trying to communicate tough times are coming and you gotta be ready for it. Now, what does it let us in on? What do we know that the disciples were packing heat, that they were carrying swords with them, that they were scared, they were feeling high anxiety, and they were defensive, and they were ready to be combative from, the, from all the stuff that they were feeling. And so when Jesus says to them, guys, pray, you need to pray so that you don't fall into temptation. I think Jesus is talking about this, all the stuff that you're feeling right now. If you don't take this and submit it to God's leadership and ask for God's help with this, you are going to sin and you're going to sin big time. 
and we see that happen with Peter. I don't know if it was 30 minutes later, two hours later, if it was just minutes later, but soldiers showed up, officers showed up, and an official showed up to come and arrest Jesus. And Peter takes one of those swords and he swings at a guy and slices off his ear, which tells me Peter had no business handling weapons. I'm, listen, I'm no expert. I've never been in law enforcement. You know, I wasn't in the army. I'm not a professional soldier, but I'm pretty sure there's no combat training anywhere that says aim for his ear, right? And then here's this guy I mean, bleeding, I mean, just crazy, chaotic moment. Jesus picks up his ear, heals him, and then lets those guys arrest him. Do you think, do you think there was anybody on the planet at that time in history who understood Jesus' teaching better than Peter? Do you think that there was anyone on the planet at that time in history who knew what Jesus was like better than Peter? Do you think his problem was he's just dumb? I don't think so. I think his problem was that he was not truly trusting and following Jesus. He was with Jesus physically, but he wasn't taking his, all of his emotional self and submitting that to the leadership of Jesus as well. And it created major, even violent problems. If you've been reading the book, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, or if you've been around for this series, you're starting to become familiar with Peter Scazzaro, a pastor and author who I've grown to greatly appreciate and respect. He said this, what we fail to realize in all of this is that a refusal to embrace our sorrows and to grieve them fully condemns us and our churches to a shallow spirituality that blocks the work of the Holy Spirit in us. It contributes to the overall sense of superficiality in our churches and to a lack of profound compassion. I'm going to be a little general here. How do we explain the phenomenon in churches? We're just being general. How do we explain the phenomenon in churches that people can come and be like this and at the same time harbor deep bitterness for others in their church? How do we explain that people can show up like this and at the same time, just underneath this, engage in gossip and backbiting and coalition building? How do we explain that? How do we explain that in churches it's possible to look like this and still be mean? I could be wrong, but I think it's because there's a profound lack of understanding of the importance of emotional maturity and how that relates to spiritual maturity. I think it's because there's a profound lack of understanding of what's going on inside of us when we experience grief and when we experience sadness and when we experience things like fear. That night when Peter reacted violently, swinging a sword at another human being made in God's image, it wasn't some misplaced protectiveness in, in Peter that wasn't driven by devotion. It was driven by fear. And we know that Peter was afraid because it wouldn't be much later into the same evening that a young girl would say, hey, aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? And in fear, three times, Peter denied even knowing Jesus. 
So here's the question. How do we intentionally grow? How do we, how, how do we get intentional about trusting and following Jesus even when we're feeling all of these things inside of us that we would rather not feel? What do we do in those moments? This is what I want to suggest today. Let's walk with Jesus through grief. Let's don't run from it or race through it. Let's walk with Jesus through our grief. Let's don't run from it or race through it. Now, let me give us a disclaimer here. I'm not a licensed therapist. I'm not a a certified counselor. I'm not a psychologist. I'm a pastor. And what I'm going to give is from the perspective of of my time as a pastor, of how I've seen in individuals and in groups just kind of lose touch with the gospel. This is what it can look like to, to race through grief. Racing through grief, deny yourself the time needed to feel what you feel. Now, there's a lot of ways that we could talk about this, but let me tell you one way that I've seen it is, especially with believers, people who are trying to follow Jesus, and they say things like, I should be past this already. If I was a better Christian, if I was more mature, I, I, I wouldn't still be feeling this. And I've seen too many followers of Jesus beat themselves up with Christian cliches instead of simply giving themselves the time they need to feel what they feel and to work through it. And when we don't give ourselves the time, you know what we end up doing? We pretend to feel what we don't feel. We can wrap ourselves up looking like this, even though that's not really what's going on inside. I want to tell us a true story. It's a bit of an extreme story, but it's a true story. A number of years ago, my grandmother slipped on a wet pavement when it was raining outside of a restaurant, fell down. She broke her leg. She broke her leg so severely that her foot would be paralyzed for the rest of her life. And so as she's laying there, rain falling on her, she's screaming in pain. There was a man walking circles around her, and he kept saying this over and over, thank you, Jesus, we praise you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, we praise you, Jesus. Now, I don't know him, and I don't know what was in his heart. But let me just ask you, do you think that he reflected what Jesus was like? Do you think that's what Jesus is like when we are in pain? It is possible, it's possible to really want to represent Jesus sincerely and actually be wrapped up in a veneer of hollow plastic gladness instead of actually representing and being what Jesus is like. We gotta slow down and not be afraid to be with people and to be with ourselves and our hurts. We can't say things that minimize hurts. We just got to sit there and be with them in it and love them. This is what running from grief looks like. Attempt to escape from what you feel, but end up exploding what you feel. I don't know if anybody else loves this one. This is one of my favorite things to do. And there are, there are a number of ways that we can try and escape from simply just binge-watching Netflix to more severe, life-threatening kind of addictions. But here's the thing about trying to escape what we feel. It's impossible to escape what we feel because it comes out. It just comes out in ways we don't expect. And so instead of doing that, which I think is what Peter did, <laughs> I, think, I think probably that was the first time in his life he had ever attacked somebody with a sword. I don't think he was expecting that to happen that night. So instead of, instead of racing through, instead of running from, what does it mean to really walk with Jesus? How about this? Let's get honest, get honest with yourself and with him about what you feel. 
I want to ask some questions here. I want to ask you to really to keep leaning in with me on these questions. Do you think do you think it's possible to be naturally more healthy emotionally than the cultures that formed us? If we grew up in cultures that rewarded withholding, if we grew up in cultures that were passive aggressive, if we grew up in cultures that kind of rewarded and encouraged keeping our emotions at bay and stuffing it, I'm, what I'm suggesting is we probably don't naturally have all the right tendencies when it comes to processing and dealing with grief. And this is where we're going to get really, really practical. The reason that I say get honest with yourself and then with Jesus is because it is impossible to be more honest with someone else than we are with ourselves. It's impossible to be more honest with somebody else than we, than we are with ourselves. And there is going to be a cap on how honest our prayers are with him. And I know you want to be honest in prayer, and I want to be honest with her, but first we just got to get real and get honest. This is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm facing. This is how I'm scared. This is what I'm worried about. Jesus, this is what's going on. This is not pop psychology. This is not bumper sticker theology. This is the real stuff of the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus with the everyday stuff of life. And when we get honest with him, then we're able to do this. Trust Jesus to set both the direction and the pace when we're in the middle of it. And we're going to trust Jesus to set the direction and the pace. And the direction is clear because it's clear in his word. When I'm angry, I'm not going to let the sun go down on my anger. When, I've got, when I know somebody's got something against me, I'm not even going to go to worship until I go to them and talk with them about it. The Bible is clear. The kinds of things, what it means to trust Jesus when we have times of, of, of just kind of just grief and anguish and difficulty in our life. So we're going to trust him with the direction, but we're also going to trust him with the pace. I'm curious, does anyone in here have a fractured relationship with like diets and cleanses? I have a, I have a fractured relationship with those things. Like I can do a two-week cleanse in two days. We're going to let Jesus set the pace. We're not going to race through it. We're going, to, we're going to let him lead us for as long as it takes. You know what I love? Jesus doesn't let people go. And the story of Jesus' life that we looked at today, Peter was a mess, wasn't he? But did you know that Peter, you know this, Peter developed into the kind of guy because Jesus, Jesus kept leading him and developing him and caring for him. Jesus kept investing in him. He would not let him go. And Jesus made him into the kind of person that not only could respond well in his own times of grief, but could be a source of comfort and care and leadership for others in their time of grief. In February, we're going to kick off a, a message series on the New Testament book of 1 Peter. It's the same guy we're reading about in this interaction in Jesus' life. And we're not going to expound on this passage, but I just want you to see a picture of how this guy developed into something beautiful because of Jesus' leadership in his life. Writing to people who are in the midst of grief, he said this, in all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These things have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. 
Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and have been filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You know how Jesus molds us and changes us and transforms us to be more like him? It's not, by, it's not by outside in. It's not like if we just do the right things, it's, and it's just like we're gonna change our behaviors and that's how, it's inside out. We get honest with Jesus. We get vulnerable with Jesus. We, we just let him know what's going on and we submit to him in prayer and we trust his direction and we trust his pace and in time from the inside out, he makes us people who look like him. This week, I was tremendously encouraged by something uh, from an author and pastor named Sam Alberry. He said this, the work God needs to do in you matters far more than the work you think he needs to do through you. The work that God wants to do in you and in me is far more important than the work we think he needs to do through us. Is there anything that you're grieving is there anything that causes you hurt? Is there anything right now that causes you anxiety? Is there anything that causes you fear? As I've been reading and thinking about all the things that have gone on over the past two and a half and three years in our country and around the world and even here locally, there are lots of things that just about everyone has had to, there's kinds of loss that everyone has carried. There's change that everyone has carried, and we've all experienced it collectively, and we've experienced our own things individually. And, and this is what I want to ask. Have we given ourselves permission to simply grieve and to trust Jesus with our grief? Or have we tried to skip past that and just work on reacting and fixing it? Because part of trusting Jesus Part of following Jesus, part of letting him lead us and work on us from the inside out is simply walking with him honestly, vulnerably, submissively with the grief that we have. And in that we discover that he is good.